God pursues us in the continuing love relationship that is personal and real. That's the reality that we're focused on this week. I want to drive that home a little bit. God has been pursuing you all your life. He's been drawing you all your life. Even when you didn't know it, even when you didn't recognize it, even when maybe you were in a place where you thought God wasn't even around. What we know from the Word of God is that God is drawing all men to Himself. And most of the time we don't recognize it. But all of our lives. And it's not because of anything we are or anything that we do. It's because of who He is. He is love and He's motivated by love. Everything that He does is about love. So my goal is each week to look at someone in the Bible that would kind of exemplify the, the reality that we're working on. And, and so as I was thinking about and praying about it over the last couple of weeks, what, who would, what would be the account, what would be the biblical account that God would want us to look at? <laughs> and Nicodemus kept coming to mind and I was, I was shaking my head and, and, you know, talking to God, going, God, I don't think this, <laughs> this, is, this is the one. This, I don't know that this really represents your reality. But as I began to look deeper into it, I recognized there's a whole lot there about God pursuing a relationship with us that is real and practical and personal. So I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. Does anyone need a Bible? Slip up your hand. Pete will bring you one. Okay. Up here. John chapter 3. And so I want to read through the account so that we get a good overall understanding. And then we'll go back and take a look at it. And, and really, I don't know what's going to happen today. There's, so, there's just so much. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Well, the good thing is we've got food on the ground, so we can go till 1.30 to... The chili will be burning, the brownies will be stale. <laughs> John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is early in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 3, it's after... So, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Now, I, I try to put yourself in the place of Nicodemus and the, and the uh, enormity of the shock that he would be experiencing. I mean, we've heard, even if we are not real life familiar with it, we've heard the term born again. We recognize the metaphor. This was a shock for Nicodemus. How can these things be? Verse 9. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It is difficult, if not impossible, for us to get a sense of the angst and the disorientation that Jesus caused when he came bringing this right-side-up kingdom into the upside-down world. It's difficult for us to grasp it or to even get a taste of it because we are so familiar with it. We, we've heard this John 3.16, um, a lot of us for a long time. I mean, but even if you're not a Christian, you're seeing the end zone, John 3.16. You go, what is that? I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's not unfamiliar. So it's hard for us to grasp the, the disorientation that it would cause Nicodemus and the angst that he would feel because he was upside down. Especially with the Jewish religious system. There were conversations, I'm sure, among the common people that we capture and as we listen to the disciples and different people that come to Jesus about who this Jesus is and, and what, what is, how does it relate to the Jewish faith and what is Messiah about and, but, and, and among the common people. But what I never really, I don't think I ever really stopped to consider the conversations that were also going on among the religious teachers of the day. Because it's easy to categorize. It's easy to put people in a box. And, and so oftentimes in the Gospels, what we see when Jesus is having conversations or connections or things are happening with the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious teachers of the day to lump them into this group of people who hated Jesus and weren't interested in truth because they were the ones that were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And so you, you see that in, 
And I, but as I looked deeper into it, I realized that there were some who were asking who this Jesus is. And we see it when Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he says, we, instead of I. And my hunch is there had been among, because the the Sanhedrin were um, the 70 top elite rulers, the the high priest, and then teachers of the day. They were the Supreme Court, the president, and the the Senate, and the House of Representatives, all wrapped up into one in the Jewish uh, community. And they were the top 70 people among all Jews around the world. And Nicodemus was one of these. And what we discover is he comes to Jesus and he says, we know as if there's this faction among those 70 that are having real conversations. We got the chief priest, high priest over here and all these that were just about themselves. They were just about wealth and power and strength. But there's this faction among the elite that are saying, who is this? And they had this sincerity about them. I mentioned in learning community that I was going to talk about Nicodemus and, and, and somebody said, oh yeah, I love that, that episode in The Chosen where Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And so I went back and watched it and, and really they quote the scripture. I mean, in this conversation, there are parts of it that aren't in the scripture, but, but what they capture is this angst that Nicodemus has as a sincere seeker of truth. And I think that's why Jesus met with him, because he was a sincere seeker of truth. And we, we find out later, what he does later confirms that. He was there with Jer- Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the Sanhedrin, who, who took care of Jesus' body after he was crucified. So we find here that Nicodemus comes to him as one of these elite having had these conversations, wondering who Jesus is. And I think perhaps God nudged me towards Nicodemus because even though he was one of these elite, he represents us. Because we, we are not ignorant of the Bible. I mean, some of us know the Bible better than others, but... He, as Nicodemus, he, he knew what the Old Testament said. And we know some of what the Bible says. But I think he represents us because we're not opposed to Jesus. But we wrestle with what it means to allow him to really turn us right side up. Even when we are, you know, even when we're, we're saying, I want to surrender, listen, and obey. I want to follow Jesus. I want to, we still wrestle with things that we don't even realize God's pushing on to allow him to be Lord of our lives and to turn us right side up. Because God is, God is pursuing us all of our lives. God is drawing us to himself to come to that place of reconciliation where we say, okay, Jesus, I give you my life. I accept your forgiveness and I have a personal relationship with you. But that's just the beginning. And so he's pursuing us with that. But then he continues to pursue us. And he continues to 
confront us with ways that we're thinking wrong or acting wrong or seeing wrong or relating wrong because, not because he's mean, but because he knows that the deep, the greater the alignment with him, the more we allow him to turn us right side up, the greater the abundant life satisfaction that he's promised to us will be, we will experience. And so it's out of his love. And so when this reality is God pursues a continuing love relationship with that is personal or real, that's what he's talking about. Let me turn you right side up because the more I align you with me, the more joy you're going to have. The more, the more uh, meaning you're going to have. The more delight you're going to have. The more joy you're going to have. The more fruit of the Spirit you're going to have. The more you will experience Jesus. And so he's not content to leave us where we are. He pursues us with a right side up relationship. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, because we know God is always drawing people, and Nicodemus has this heart of a seeker, Jesus lays it out for him and causes, I can't even imagine the angst that Nicodemus walks away with because of what Jesus says. So let's talk about, let's see how far we get. Number one, USD, which is, doesn't mean the United States dollar, <laughs> is an abbreviation or an acronym, I don't know what you call it, to, for what? Upside. upside down. Upside down. So the upside down reality that we live with is that our default, mankind's default, is to have distant relationships. Our default is not towards intimacy because intimacy is scary. Intimacy means we have to be vulnerable and transparent. I know this because way back in Genesis chapter 3, well, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we find Adam and Eve walking in intimacy with God. Pure partnership, vulnerability, transparency. They were naked and unashamed. That, that phrase indicates with God, with one another, they had nothing to be ashamed of. They had nothing to be embarrassed by. They were they, just intimate relationships. But as soon as they disobeyed God, what did they do? They hid from God and they hid from each other. They covered up. And at that moment, everything was turned upside down. And instead of the default being intimacy with God and with one another, it became distance. Our default is distant relationships. That's what we come in the world with. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, one of kind of the hallmark scriptures of, of this attitude of from where God sits and living right side up, we find... God saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And, okay, we can accept that, right? God is God, we're not. His thoughts are different. His ways are different. And then he emphasizes in verse 9, as high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. They're so different that you can't even measure them. 180 degrees, upside down. Our default is upside down. The result of sin is distance. 
So when Adam and Eve sinned, they, they hid from God. They, it created distance that they never knew from God. And God calls out to them because he's always the pursuer. He's always the instigator. He calls out to them, Adam and Eve, where are you? Not that he didn't know, is he wanted them to reveal themselves because he won't force it. And he, they come out and they're covered. They, and it just from, from that point on, the result of sin in our lives is distance. So look at John chapter 3 again. In verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, one of the 70 most important people in the Jewish, among the Jewish people. This man came to Jesus by night. And we don't know why he came by night. <clears throat> Probably because he didn't want anybody to, everybody to know it. He didn't want crowds to be around. Um, but he meets him by night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know we, so it's not just him, he's representing somebody else. We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's seeking. The other Pharisees are going, you're doing things that we don't like, we're going to kill you. Nicodemus comes along and said, we know there's something special about you. you. You have to be from God because nobody could do the kinds of things that you are doing. But we don't understand it. We don't get it. We don't know. And then, um, then he's going to speak to Nicodemus in some deep theological terms. He's going to go right at him. But before we get there, I think it's important for us to recognize that um, as sin creates distance, we need to recognize that distance comes in a lot of different ways, a lot of different forms. Um, so, it, you know, the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, it's possible to be in the same room with someone and still be worlds away, isn't it? Distance isn't you know, geographic proximity. What he's talking about here is distance, distance of, of the heart, the brokenness in me causing a brokenness in a relationship with somebody else. Our default is not to be transparent and vulnerable. Our default is to be protective. And so distance comes in a lot of different ways. God is constantly trying to get us to, to be closer to him but he's also trying to get us to be closer to other people. But you can't be closer to other people unless you're closer to him. Because there's not, he's the only one that provides safety. So there, it, it comes in a lot of different forms. Sin, if you, if you want to jot down, I didn't put these in your, in your notes, but you could just jot them down. So sin, anytime we break relationship, anytime we disobey God, it creates distance. Because we are... To be at one with God is, is to be surrendered to him. He's the master and I'm being obedient to him. So anytime I sin, I'm saying, I don't want you to be the master. I want to be the master. I want to do what I want to do. And in essence, we're turning our back on God. So we're 180 degrees from where he is. That's why when the Bible talks about obeying God, not sinning, leaving a life of sin, we no longer live a life of sin in 1 John. And when he talks about leaving a life of sin, it's not because God doesn't want us to have fun. 
It's because he doesn't want us to be at a distance from him and being at distance from him away from all that we long for. That's why in, the, in Psalm 51, the second verse of that song that we sang is, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. David was desperate because he knew the pain of the distance from God when we're not walking with him. And so whenever you're tempted to do anything that you know God doesn't want you to do, just understand, if you choose that, you're turning your back on God. And it's not just, am I going to hell? It's, am I, I, I'm, I'm going to experience the opposite of what I long for. Lies. Distance comes from falsehoods, from misinterpretations of the enemy. So, and so when I say lies and misinterpretation, here's what I mean. Have you ever come to the place in your life where things have gone terribly wrong? And immediately, there's something in your ear that says, where is God when I need him most? That's a lie. That's the devil, the enemy trying to say to us, God's not here. That's a lie. But how, I, I, how many people have you ever talked to that say just that? I don't, I'm not going to serve God because when I needed him the most, he was nowhere to be found. That's a lie. That creates distance. Um, this week in, in the, the Blackaby study, I think this week or last week, they talked about, um, Henry Blackaby talked about when his daughter got cancer. And they wondered, why in the world? You know, we're trying to serve God. Why would our daughter get cancer? But what they didn't say is, God's not here. They said, God is doing something. I just have to trust him. I know that he's good. And I know that he's God. And I'm just going to trust him. But the lie is, the temptation is the self-centered view. If God really, here it is. If God really loved me, then he wouldn't do this. He wouldn't allow this. Or he would change this. Or he would get me out of this. Or he would provide this for me. That's a self-centered approach. Well, we have to start with this. God loves me. So God, what are you up to? I don't understand it. I don't get it. But it is more meaningful and pleasurable and powerful to be in alignment with God in the middle of a mess than it is for God to deliver us from a mess and not be with God. Amen. And sometimes it's the very mess that we want out of that God uses to draw us to himself. Look at the Bible. How many times was it in the moment when somebody was struggling and experiencing pain that God drew closest? That's right side up. But our upside down um, default says, well, God's not here. Fear. One of the hugest weapons of the enemy. In fact, when Jesus came, what we know is on the cross, he came to defeat sin and death and fear. Because fear is, the, is one of the primary weapons, maybe the biggest weapon of the enemy. If he can get us to be afraid, he kicks our brain out of gear and we start doing stupid things. Uh, everybody, Randy said amen because he's done it. <laughs> everybody else should be saying amen because we've all done it, right? We get afraid. 
So this, this is pretty heavy, so I'm going to break that up. So we, some of you have heard this story. It's one of the stories that my sister loves to tell. When we were kids and we were camping, um, and I was probably 10, 11 years old. My sister was about six. Um, and we were camping and we were all around this campfire. And as we were around this campfire, my dad was there, my mom was there, my whole family is there. And we're sitting there and we look up and there's a family of skunks walking right towards us. I don't know if you've ever met a skunk. He's not a friend. He's there for himself. He's there for the food that he can get. And if you get in his way, he'll, he'll share his aroma with you in a way that will be memorable and lasting. So we're looking and they're going. And, and so we're all sitting. And I don't know if my dad look, saw the look on my face, but he said specifically, to, he said to all of us, specifically to me, don't move. And the skunks just kept walking. Don't move. And they kept getting closer. Don't move. And they came almost right up to the firing. And I jumped up and I ran over and I cowered down behind my sister. <laughs> How did that play? It's a family legend now. Fear caused me to not do what my dad told me to do that he knew best. Because he knew if, if you're still, they'll just leave you. They might come and nibble on something and then they'll walk away. It's the movement. It's the threat to them that will cause it. And so my dad is saying, don't move. And so oftentimes our Heavenly Father is saying, don't move. Or lean into me or walk this way. Just trust me. But fear overcomes us. I think the one that created distance for Nicodemus and, and those elders of the Jewish faith in the Sanhedrin was religion. And what we're going to see in this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus is he gets at the heart of religion. We think that religion should connect us with God. In reality, religion creates distance from us and God. At the risk of sounding critical of uh, American denominations and churches, I want you to think about how most of the buildings are, are um, laid out. The regular people are out there and then up here, way higher and at a distance is the Bible, the cross, the clergy, and they're wearing robes or other things that make them appear different subconsciously from everybody else. Whether they're meaning it or not is, is, is irrelevant. Satan tries always to create distance through religion. Religion is, if I can do these things, I can earn favor with God. If I can be good enough, then God will love me. If I can follow these rules, then I'll be better. And so it creates this distance. And Satan has so gotten into our mindset that, oh, that's the special people. That's the, that's the you know, God's up there somewhere. He's way far away. But he's not down here with us, is he? Right. And so 
um, when Jesus comes, the Sanhedrin are all about religion. They were um, tasked with the idea hundreds of years before Jesus' time to be representatives of God to the people so that the people could know God, so that the people would know God. And, so, and they, they zeroed in on the Old Testament law, starting with the Ten Commandments and then identifying 613 other commandments in the Old Testament. Here's how to live according to the way that God wants you to in the Old Testament. But then they began, as religion always does, instead of relationship, they began to take those in and begin to say, well, what does it really mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to steal or covet? What is it? And, and so they added on more definition and more restrictions. And what does it mean to, to uh, keep the Sabbath day holy? How, how far can you walk? Are you allowed to feed your animals? Are you allowed to, I mean, just all of these things. That, and, and so it became keeping these rules and regulations that cause distance from God rather than closeness with God, which is what the commandments were meant to do. And so somewhere along the, the line, Nicodemus, having given his life to being a Pharisee, memorizing vast portions of the Old Testament, knowing all of these 613 commandments, and then all of the restrictions, and knowing all of that somewhere, he had opened his heart to God enough to say, this isn't meeting my deepest desire to know God. And so he risked everything to come to Jesus. Now, we look at Nicodemus, and as I said before, I think God has pointed us to Nicodemus because he does represent us. Because unknowingly, we get into this habit being our default being upside down of saying, I need to do this in order, for, in order for God to love me. If I don't have my time with him today, then he doesn't love me as much. If I'm not being obedient in this way, then God really doesn't care for me as much. That's religion. If there's any place in your life where you are choosing rules over God. That's religion. Now, rules have their place if they're pointing us to God, if they're leading us to intimacy with Him. Does He want us to have time with Him? Absolutely He does, but not to make Him happier, but because He loves us and, and He knows that that's the way to love Him. So I want to challenge you to listen and recognize that there are so many ways that we are, instead of allowing God to pull us to him in a love relationship, we're still stuck in doing things and religion. The Christian life is the process of moving closer in alignment with God by keeping our heads in his yoke and just following the tugs. That's what it's about. That's relationship. Number two, let's take a look at this. RSU isn't some university. <laughs> what is it? Right side, up. right side up. Right side up kingdom of God. Right side up living is this continuing personal love relationship. One of the difficulties is that we have no point of reference 
for love relationships as God desires? We really don't. How many of you, well, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself. So many of us, let me say it that way, struggle when we hear our Heavenly Father because we didn't have good relationships with our Father, our human Father. In fact, some people have been abused. Some people have been abandoned. Some people have been harmed in ways that they're still struggling with from their human father. Some people have been abused by clergy people. And so to think of God as a father is hard. That's not an accident. That's a strategy from the pit of hell. Because he wants to keep us from seeing God as who he really is. So everything that God has designed, the enemy will try to destroy. So we have no point of reference for that. Um, and even if we had good fa human fathers, they didn't love us like God wants to love us. They were imperfect. They couldn't. And then everyone struggles with this whole idea of unconditional love. Where do you get unconditional love in our culture? It, it doesn't exist because even if we want it to be unconditional, it's still, there's, there's stuff in us that causes it to be conditional. So we struggle because we have no point of reference for love relationships. God has to overcome all of those wrong ideas and inter introduce us to a new idea, a different idea. So look at that, look in your Bible again, John chapter 3, Verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world, all that he's ever created, that he gave his only son, the very best that he had, that whoever believes in him, and believing mean, is about relationships, not about intellectual ascent going, yeah, I know Jesus is, Lord. Jesus is God. It's about, uh, belief in the Bible is about uh, um, um, acknowledging and obeying. It's a lifestyle. It's not an intellectual ascent. That whoever believes, whoever puts their faith, whoever gives themselves should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. His purpose was not to condemn everyone, but rather that the world might be saved through him. That everything would be redeemed, including... So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed. Because he's turned away from God. So Nicodemus has a desire to know God, and so he is pursuing... He, he comes to Jesus, he has this conversation with Jesus, where all the other Pharisees are condemned because they don't want anything to do with them. Jesus is invading all that they, and threatening everything that they have. So he says his whole purpose is to draw people to himself. But we have no point of reference for a love relationship with God. Nicodemus should have known. If anybody would have known. If it, if it could be understood simply by the, the, the truth that is written in the word of God, Nicodemus should have known. Because from the very beginning, God's whole purpose in creating Adam and Eve was to have a love relationship that would partner in his creation. 
That was the point. And then, he, here's some scripture. So, so Nicodemus is one of the scholars. He's one of the people who knows the Old Testament the best. He would be familiar with all of these scriptures. And I want to just read through them very quickly. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 10, as Jacob is returning back to his homeland, he says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. Talking about God. Jacob had done nothing to earn God's love. But he recognizes Genesis all the way back there that God is about steadfast love and faithfulness. He's talking to God that you have shown to your servant. Exodus chapter 15, verse 13, after they had, the Israelites had come through the Red Sea. You have led in your steadfast love. Notice it's not saying your power, his power is there, but his motivation. Even in the Old Testament, they recognize it's his steadfast, undying, consistent, indescribable love that you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. In Numbers chapter 14, the first part of verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Steadfast love. Old Testament. This is Old Testament. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, in the Old Testament, God is so angry and mean, he's just killing people all over the place. No. At the core, he has steadfast fast love. You go to, you, uh, you go to um, Deuteronomy and you find verse after verse after verse talking about God's love. Joshua and Judges. We see God knowing his people and loving his people, providing for them, protecting them, delivering them. In the book of Ruth, a wonderful picture of the way God cares in, in his love uh, for Ruth and Naomi. Throughout the Old Testament, books of history, 1st and 2nd Samuels, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you see over and over, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. It's all about God showing his undying love in relationship with people. In Psalm, it's chock full. 166 times it mentions love in 150 chapters. And then through the prophets, they were inspired by God to express God's steadfast love. And I, I, here's just some examples. In Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy, come, his mercy never comes to an end. Hosea, a whole book about God's love for his people that don't deserve it. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God. And, and as Nicodemus and Jesus are sitting there talking, I can almost see Jesus pointing back. Now, you know, his strategy could have been to point. Nicodemus, you know this. Remember the scripture in Joel 2.13. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. In Micah chapter 7.20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. And then Zephaniah 3.17, probably in my mind, the epitome of God desiring a love relationship with people in the Old Testament. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Lord your God is in the middle of where you are. He is a mighty one who will save. Power. He is God, the God of the universe. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. As if he's holding a child, holding Joel when she gets upset and, and just he quiets her with his love. That's his attitude toward the people that are willing to turn to him. The struggle is for Nicodemus that he's so upside down. He's so steeped in the religion that he's grown up with that his mind is saying, this can't be right. But his heart and soul are saying, there's got to be more. And so Jesus goes right after him. Look at, in your Bible. Go back to John chapter 3. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus cuts to the chase. And I, you know, I've often wondered, why did Jesus just hit, you know, why did he just jump in with both feet like that? Because he's addressing the bigger issue. It's not about the miracles he's doing. He's addressing the bigger issue that's in the way. Nicodemus, you're upside down. You're upside down. Unless one is born again, unless one is completely renewed, unless one does a 180 degree turn, you cannot experience the kingdom of God, the, the rule of God, the relationship with God. It's impossible to get there by religion. And Nicodemus, all of your life, that's what you've been trying to do. And now you're at the epitome of your career, just like Paul was. You're at the epitome of career. There's nothing else for you to do, Nicodemus, and you still haven't found God. Born is representative. Now, we're probably going to have to stop with this. Born, why, of all the metaphors that Jesus could have used, he used that one. And as I was thinking and praying and studying this week, um, I sense God showing me something that I'd never seen in this passage before. The, this metaphor of being born represents the closest relationship on the face of the earth. A mother bearing a child. A mother carrying a child for all those months and that child finally coming in to this world, into, you know, from her womb after all those times of carrying her. And now she's being born again in the, the deepest love relationship possible. Jesus could have said it a lot of different ways, but he used that. And so when he says being born again, it's not this sterile kind of picture. It's saying of all, Nicodemus, of all the human relationships that you have ever seen, when your children came into this world, look at how your wife relates to her because they came out of her body. They have been born. And now, Nicodemus, if you want to experience God, You've got to experience the same kind of love relationship, the same kind of being transformed into my image, accepting my love, coming into this world helpless. Nicodemus, you need to get helpless. You need to surrender everything. You need to become like that little baby 
who has, has not earned any kind of love, but has all the love of his parents. Because if anything, when a child is being carried for eight months, they're not earning favor. Any, any, any moms want to say amen? amen? That's the most painful process you'll ever be through. And some, and, and some of you are still experiencing the consequences of carrying those children. But is it worth it? Most days. They have done nothing to earn it. And that's what, God, that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is reeling. Look at, his, look at what he says. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And, you know, when I went back and watched the, that episode of The Chosen, I love the look on Jesus' face. Because he knows how much, he's portrayed as knowing how much Nicodemus is struggling. But there's a mischievous, there's a, a delight as Nicodemus struggles. Because Jesus knows he's moving toward what he needs. How can, how can a man be born again? Um, and Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, physically, he says, uh, born of the flesh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that is born of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Nicodemus, is what you're looking for. It's my reign, it's my rule, it's following me as Savior. We'll plan to pick it up there next week. In this moment, would, would you just bow your head and, and give the Holy Spirit opportunity to identify any way that you're holding God at arm's length? Because God is, is pursuing a love relationship with you. A love relationship represented by that birth, by being born again. That is represented in his death for us. And he longs to pull us into alignment. So give him opportunity to, to say, this is, you're still upside down here. You know, one of the things I write in my journal a lot is we are way more upside down than we realize. And God will point out something else. I go, whoa, I didn't even realize that was there. We're still way upside down. So give him access. And so I would encourage you to pray and, and surrender. God, this week, reveal to me the next step, whatever it is. As, as it was for Nicodemus, this was the next step. Lord, reveal the next step. So Lord, I pray that for each person, that you would show the next step. You would reveal the next step of, of surrendering, listening, obeying, allowing you to turn us right side up so that we can experience that joy that comes from being tugged by you, being in, in step with you, 
Lord, I pray that you would help us as iron sharpens iron to encourage one another and strengthen each other and, and walk together through all of this. That you can truly have access to what you want to do in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I would encourage